This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. And for the most part, yes, we have operations. Yes, we have torn shoulders. Yes, we get the flu. Yes, our child is in trouble. Yes, our parent is beginning to have dementia. I was just listening to a Dharma talk given by this student who had the stroke. I have to talk to him about it. Because he said at one point, well, yes, I mean, everything happens for a reason. Don't you believe it? Everything just happens. What our job is, is to figure out what we're going to learn from it. How are we going to grow from this very hard time? Because I don't believe that there's any force out there saying, oh, well, Misha really needs a little coming down here. I'm going to mess up her foot and make her go have surgery. That would be too complicated. There's too many of us for that kind of rationality in the universe. You know, things happen. And then we have the opportunity to either ignore it, get completely hit by it, or do something with it. So, I've probably said this before, but I liken it to having a 90 mile an hour softball, baseball, sorry, baseball, thrown directly at you. And you see it coming sometimes. You have a choice. You can let it hit you, but if you're smart, you're going to duck, or you're going to move, or maybe you put up your hand. I mean, you're probably sorry if you don't have a mitt, but still. But often what we do is we turn away, as if by not seeing the baseball, it's just going to magically go away. It does not. And in fact, what happens is usually because you are so unprepared, then it hurts even more. So, the trick for us in difficult times, which is, as I say, most of the time, is to remember that while I'm saying, why me? Do I ever actually say that when good things are happening? When everything's going well? Do I sit there and go, oh, why me? Probably not. I just accept it as my dessert, right? My just dessert. Well, you don't deserve good things to happen anymore. Someone deserves bad things happening. The people who have recently been shot in these mass shootings in three major cities, did they deserve it? Of course not. Did other people in the crowd who didn't get hit deserve it? Nobody deserves it. But these things happen. So it's actually not so much about practicing in hard times as practicing in all times 
for whatever is happening in this moment. We don't ask for hardship, but we receive it (laughs) because that is the nature of our life. It is the first noble truth and you really don't need to know the other ones. There will be dukkha. There will be suffering because you have a body. And the body is fragile. And there are the three marks of existence that you could explain to anyone with no Buddhist jargon at all. Number one, there will be suffering in your life. You cannot avoid it. Number two, there is impermanence. All you have to do is look at yourself in the mirror and compare that to a photograph of your cute little self at four years old. You have changed. And number three, you know, in Zen practice we call it emptiness, but you can just as easily call it interconnectedness or interbeing. It is the same thing. It is only, we only use the word emptiness because it is, you are empty of a permanent nature. From the moment you walked in tonight until this moment and the next moment, you are changing. If you had anything to eat, it's going through your body. It's going into your blood. It's feeding your organs. It's going into fat, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) But you're changing. Some of it's going to your brain. That's good. It's food. There is no such thing as a permanent you. And there is also no such thing as a you that is somehow separate and distinct from everything else. Just isn't. Simple, the simple part to think about is breathing. All of this air in this room right now, when it comes into my lungs, when does it become me? It, is it when it goes down my throat? Is it when it enters my lungs? Is it when the little alveoli go, ooh, oxygen? Is it when the bloodstream carries it around? And at what point does it stop being me? And at what point do you start breathing my air? We can't get away from it. We are connected. Our delusion that causes, number one, our suffering, is not understanding our connection. So I would posit, first of all, that the thing that we do to practice in hard times is to deeply, wisely, and kindly understand our connection. Those people who've been in the next room, you are totally connected to them every week. Every time they clap tonight, it was wonderful. It was like a little mindfulness bell. Come back. I wanted to clap too. Because they are trying to find their way, just as we are. Everyone is trying to find their way. There are many ways up the mountain. The point is to go up the mountain. So there's a very um, famous author of, uh, of religion, uh, Houston Smith. And he wrote a book called The Religions of the World. He died a couple of years ago, at, somewhere in his 90s. An incredibly wise man. But he made some decision early on. He was the son of missionaries. And they were in China. So he started in China. And because of his religious upbringing, he made up his mind that he needed to understand all the religions of the world. So he spent 10 years in all the major religions. 
He practiced Zen for 10 years in Japan. He practiced 10 years in the Anglican Church. He practiced 10 years with the Jesuits. He practiced 10 years with an imam. And finally he ended with a Sufi master for 10 years. When he got to the Sufi master, apparently he said to him, you know, so I've, I've studied these six major religions, I've actually taken part, I've practiced them for a reasonably long period of time. Am I totally crazy? And the Sufi master said, you know what? You can dig six holes ten feet deep or you can dig one hole sixty feet deep. You will still get to the same place. The point is to dig. So that is what we are all doing. We're digging. We're digging into our heart. And sometimes in that digging uh, there's, there's some space and some bad stuff falls in and And we're like, oh no, that wasn't what I was expecting. No, we're never, isn't it interesting? Bad things happen to us all our life and we still don't expect it. (laughs) Well, Zen practice says no expectations, so I guess that's good. So it just happens. Before I do that, just for a moment, close your eyes and think about the hardest thing in your life right now. Okay. I hope that really didn't take very long because I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has something that they're dealing with because that's part of our delusion is that we look at people and we think, oh, that person doesn't have any problems. Everybody does. Everybody has something going on in their life. So then the question is, what are you doing with that difficulty? Some people are ignoring it. They're turning their head away. Some people are in despair. If you're reading the news every day, you're in despair. Some people are having a little Pollyanna moment. Oh, it'll all turn out all right. But some people actually understand what it means to hope, to believe in possibility. So I find it very interesting always. It's like, you know, the word synchronicity that whenever a topic comes up, it's suddenly that there's like five books out there, all with the title. So I wanted to talk about hope and what that would look like in a Buddhist practice. So while I was in my recovery, a very dear friend of mine who is a Zen teacher in a different lineage sent me her new book, Deep Hope. Diane Rosetto. And then last night I had a friend of mine from San Francisco Zen Center come and give a talk. And she was talking about how Joanna Macy has a new book called Active Hope. And then it turns out that Diane in her book is quoting Joan Halifax, another Zen teacher, who has a book called Wise Hope. 
they're all the same kind of hope. Let me just say that first off. So, what exactly is the hope I'm talking about? I'm, I'm going to use deep hope as my go-to here. Okay? So this is what Diane Rosetto says in her book. Her teacher was this teacher, Joko Beck, who sort of broke away from the mainstream Zen and took all of the stuff off the altars and didn't bother with all this you know, nonsense. She had a rock on the altar. Her name was Joko Beck. My teacher, Joko Beck, counseled me not to be attached to anything, not even to no hope. So she had been trying not to be attached to hope, but then the teacher said, don't even be attached to no hope. Okay. Hope, yes. But don't be attached to the outcome. Know the difference between what she called vain hope, which is a closed system between us and a desired future outcome, and what could be called deep hope which makes no guarantees for any particular outcome. The former, vain hope, fails to appreciate the complexity of conditions that will arise with whatever comes to be, whereas the latter, deep hope, understands that in the midst of impermanence and interconnection, we can only do our best. Now, when somebody is being really annoying or frustrating or exasperating, there's a part of us that's thinking, they should be doing better. Or why can't they grow up and be an adult? I caught myself years ago at school thinking of this of some of my fellow staff members. God, I just wish they would grow up. But why do I have that expectation? Everybody is doing their best, de facto. Whatever they're doing, that's, that's the best they can do, because believe me, if they could do better, they would. If they could act more mature, they would. If they could feel more secure, they would, because nobody likes to suffer. So the fact is, everybody, despite what it looks like on the outside, is actually doing the best they can in that moment. Which allows us to create a much bigger space around what they're doing instead of sitting around judging it all the time and wanting it to be different. So she says, vain hope is a closed system. It's unrealistic. Just because I want a thing to turn out the way I want it to does not mean it's going to. In fact, 99% of the time, it's going to come out differently. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons that I stopped worrying years ago. Because you know how it is, you worry about something, and you worry, and you needle it, and you noodle it, and then it actually happens, and it's nothing like you thought it was going to be, and so all that stuff that you thought you were preparing for was a waste of time. Because whatever is happening is happening in this moment and you can only deal with it in this moment. And that's not to say don't prepare because of course we want to be prepared but it also means be willing to throw it out the door if it doesn't match what you need. And step forward into this moment where you will better understand what you need. 
So I've said this before probably to some of you that years ago, one of my Zen students and later became one of my dearest friends, her husband was dying of cancer. He'd already been through one round and then he'd had remission for about five years, I think. We didn't know each other then, but I had done hospice work with one of the 15-year-olds in my school who had died and she heard about me. So a friend of hers, she said, boy, I really could have used someone like Misha. So we got introduced, and the first time we met in the library when I was still the librarian, and then my friend came in, and, and she wasn't my friend, I didn't know her at all. And she sat down and she started talking about where she was at this point with her husband. And it was like, well, he's been in remission, but now he's not. And in a couple of months, this is going to happen. And in a couple more months, this is going to happen. In another couple of months, that's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let, let's back up a little. You're here in this moment. You actually don't know exactly what's going to happen. And I will also say that in those two months between now and this next event that you're imagining, you're going to learn so many things and feel so many things that by the time you get there, you will be able to cope with it. But you're forgetting all that time in between that's allowing you to get ready to deal with this very difficult thing. So, what is this deep hope that Diane is talking about? Okay. She says, like all meditation practice, deep hope asks us to dwell in the unknown we don't like that. We want to know because we have, again, a delusion of thinking. If I just know everything, I can control it. As I say to my puppy, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. The unknown, the open, spacious realm of possibility. Rather than this scary thing, this abyss that we're jumping off into, to be able to think of it instead as an open, spacious realm of possibility. Yes, we face things as they are, but deep hope draws no conclusions about the future, for the future is yet to be and is determined by many conditions, including, but not limited to, our actions right here and now. So although we see things as they are, we also aspire toward what they could be. It was in deep hope that Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged us to keep raising our voices in solidarity and marching step by step. The same hope that expressed, I have a dream. Hope understood in this way goes beyond the probable to the possible. Because the future is wide open, anything is possible. It may still mean that my friend's husband dies, which he did. But it also means that along the way, everything changed for her. She had never had a meditation practice. She had never had someone walk side by side with her through such a terrible thing. Everything changed for her. It doesn't take away her missing her husband or the fact that her husband died when her son was only graduating from high school. It doesn't take away from that. 
But it's, there's something else that came through. So, lest we misunderstand this, though, there's another wonderful statesman who you may have heard of, uh, Vaclav Havel. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he's a very wise man. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Sometimes that making sense doesn't happen for years. We wonder, why did this happen instead of that? And as I say, I don't think it's because there's a reason everything happens. But I do think something can grow. Think of your life. Think of the times that were absolutely the hardest for you and the times that came after that. You were stretched in ways that you never would have done on purpose. We are pain-averse. We are suffering-averse. We will go to great lengths to avoid anything that is painful. And then sometimes life comes along and gives you exactly what you have found in any ways to avoid. Because it's where we grow. Years ago, something happened in my personal life which was absolutely devastating. The last thing I expected to happen. It was, as a very dear friend described, who had had a similar experience, it's like you've been living in a glass ball all your life, everything just exactly the way it was supposed to be, and then suddenly, it broke into a thousand pieces on the floor. You have a choice then. That is the wonderful thing about free will. You can decide, way too many pieces. No way to put this back together. Sweep, 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 sweep into the garbage can. That's one choice. That's a very, you know, valid, viable choice. And then you go on and you do something else. Or, like I did in this case, you decide that there's enough pieces there that you put it back together and it's really a long and painful process. But here's the thing. It's a more beautiful glass ball because of all the cracks. Because that's our life. Our life is one little crack after another. Anybody who's got a perfectly round ball has not lived long enough. So, not the same thing as optimism, he says. Yeah, well, I have, I confess, okay, I can be a little bit of a Pollyanna. And it's really great because I'm married to my opposite. So while I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's going to be grand, and he's, oh, everything's, oh, somewhere in the middle we meet. <laughs> and this is good. That's why they say opposites attract, because, you know, I'm flying off on my little balloon, and he's down there, and, you know, he's holding on to me, and I'm lifting him up from the ground. This is good. 
But this is the part about hope not being a closed system. It's not unrealistic. It's about, okay, here's what I've been given. Now, what am I going to do with it? I have many options. I can ignore that giant pile of shards of glass on the ground. I can sweep it up and throw it away and pretend it never happened. I can sweep it up and put it in a little glass jar to remind me of what used to be. We have a lot of people who do that. I can decide to sweep it up and cleanly throw it away and start fresh. I can decide that it's worthwhile putting it back together. We have a lot of options. Unfortunately, death is not one of those ones that you can put it back together. Death happens. That's the one where you just have to figure out the other options. What are you going to do with them? So, what I really love, another quote from Vaclav Havel. He uses slightly different terms, so Diane Rosetto puts in deep hope as, as the subject. Deep hope is a state of the mind, not a state of the world. It is an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond the world's horizons. It is the ability to work for something because it is good. Not just because it stands a chance to succeed. It keeps us above water and urges us to good works. This could have been the motto of my life if I have felt and believed anything. It is that fundamentally, somewhere deep down inside of all of us, we know what is good. And we don't do it for the sake of success. We don't do it for the fame or the money or the acknowledgement. We do it for itself. And we are the first recipient in all that scientific uh, experimenting they've been doing on the brain. And how on this side, when you do something that is happy and makes other people happy, you, your brain lights up like a Christmas tree. You are the first recipient of that goodness. Now you may believe that's optimism. I don't. I believe that's Buddha mind. So he says, you know, this, this then, this is the antidote to these hard times. This is when you're feeling despair. When you see one more tweet that makes you absolutely just, oh, I can't believe this person said that. Or why doesn't somebody stand up and have a backbone? Or in my case, unbelievable things I learned while in this temporary state of disability. Many people will hold the door open for you when you are obviously in a boot with a cane. Other people, and I don't think it's personal, they just fly through those doors and they never see you. We aren't paying attention. 
And we need to be. We need to be eyes open all the time. What can I do to be of service? How can I be kinder? There's a monk, and I think it's one of the ones from um, Vajrapani, whose morning practice, the moment he wakes up, his first thought is, how can I be of service today? Doesn't get much easier than that. So the antidote to these hard times, to the despair that we all fall prey to a little bit, is to remember that hope is a state of the mind, not a state of the world. Whatever is happening out there, believe me, there is also so much good happening out there. But good news doesn't often make it to NBC or CNN or even Fox. You know, there's a part of us that, you know, it's an old song by Don Henley, Dirty Laundry. There's a little bit of us in there that likes the dirty laundry. But mostly we don't. Mostly it upsets us. And rightly so. It goes against all the eightfold path of right speech, right action, right view. But to work for something because it is good, not because it has a chance to succeed. And most importantly, to keep us above water. It's like a life preserver. To do good work. Work, the word, is much maligned. But there is a wonderful story about a man who dies and uh, he finds himself in, you know, this cloudy, lovely place. And he's got all these creatures who are doing whatever, you know, bring me food, bring me wine, everything is fabulous. And then, you know, this goes on for a while and finally he starts getting a little bit bored and he goes to somebody and he says, um, excuse me, you know, is there something I could be like, maybe do around here? And the creature says to him, well, where do you think you are? Heaven? <laughs> we work because it, we work for the good of ourselves, our family, our communities, our society, our world. Work is good. Work exercises our brain and our body. Whether our work is playing piano, or our work is typing in a computer, or our work is taking care of children, or our parents, or our work is in hospitals, or we're a policeman. All work is valuable. But to do your work with your practice at all times, that elevates it. That is good work. That is work in which you are paying attention. It takes a lot of effort to pay attention. But that's what our practice is always asking of us. To remember that despite what you're hearing on the news, that despite the fact that tonight on the way here two people ran through a red light, you're thinking, oh. That despite the fact that we forget to open doors for the disabled and the elderly and the children. 
that despite the fact that we hear horror stories of how those various people are treated, despite all the mass shootings, despite all of that, fundamentally, people are good. Deep down, there is a Buddha nature. And what we are doing here is realizing it, acknowledging it in ourselves and in each other and in all beings, whether they be four-footed or (laughs) no-footed or two-footed, all sentient beings have Buddha mind. That is a fundamental doctrine of Buddhist practice. This is what the Buddha understood in his great moment of enlightenment when he says, all beings are enlightened with me. This is what, all beings are connected and so if I am enlightened, so is everything and everyone. How encouraging is that? So remember, as Havel says, hope transcends the world that is immediately experienced. It is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. So you may have days that are very challenging. There may be days when you think, why am I sitting here? What a waste of time, it's boring. (laughs) No, it's not. No matter whether you think anything is happening or not, something is happening. This is the gift that we give each other. This is the gift we give the people at work. This is the gift we give to the stranger on the street or the cashier, register person. This is a gift that we both give and receive until there is no giver and no receiver, but only the gift. And that, my friends, is how we deal with challenging times. I bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.